the National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. One of the most amazing settings in the national park system consists of glaciers. From Glacier National Park in Montana and Mount Rainier National Park in Washington State to Alaska, these rivers of ice are captivating to see and, if you're lucky enough, to walk upon or watch as they calve blocks of ice into the Pacific waters. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at the National Parks Traveler. But as amazing as these rivers of ice are, they are vanishing under the warmth of climate change. Glacier National Parks glaciers could be gone by mid-century. Many of those in Alaska are almost visibly in retreat. But how serious is the problem? What is the overall state of glacial ice in the park system? Two researchers, Deborah Kurtz from the National Park Service and Taryn Black, a doctoral student in Earth and Space Sciences at the University of Washington, have tried to answer that question as it applies to Kenai Fjords National Park, two hours south of Anchorage, Alaska. I'll be back in a minute with Taryn to discuss this. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. The Everglades Foundation, the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. The beauty of lifelong membership with Interior Federal Credit Union is that we are here for you forever to handle any financial needs that life throws your way car loans, home repairs, investment accounts, trust accounts for the family. 99% of our members never visit a branch because of our 4.8 star rated mobile app. Make sure you share the gift of membership with your family. Start kids and grandkids with a Little Buffalo account at interiorfcu.org. Federally insured by NCUA. Hi, Taryn. Welcome to The Traveler. Hey, Kurt. Thanks for having me. I'm wondering, in the paper that you and Deborah wrote, and which appeared in the August 5th edition of the Journal of Glaciology, you noted that 13 of Kenai Fjord's 19 glaciers show substantial retreat. Four are relatively stable, and two have advanced. Now, before we get into the details, why did you look at Kenai Fjord's and its glaciers, rather than those, say, in Glacier Bay National Park? So for me, this opportunity came through um, an internship program with the National Park Service and the Ecological Society of America. Um, so Deb had put out a call for an intern that was specifically because Deb works at Kenai Fjords National Park. She was looking for an intern to um, come and help her study how glaciers in the park are changing. Um, and I saw this internship opportunity and as a graduate student, my research had been very focused on using satellite images to study glacier retreat in Greenland. Um, and this opportunity in Alaska was very similar to what I was already doing, but just applied to different great glaciers. And I thought it was a great chance to um, apply my skill set to the National Park Service. Well, how did, how did you go about this study, Taryn? I mean, did you, I believe you looked at 38 years of, of weather records. Is that is that the case? Yeah, so we looked at 38 years of um, actually satellite images. Uh, so these were all from the Landsat series of satellites, which are American satellites that have been recording the Earth's surface around the globe since about 1972. 
So we didn't go all the way quite back to 1972 because there were some issues with the earlier satellites, but um, we looked at satellite images twice per year, every year from 1984 to 2021 to look at where the fronts of these glaciers were. And so we traced an outline of the front of these glaciers and then measured how the size of the glaciers was changing over time. Wow. Were were the satellite images that sharp and clear that you could uh, discern from year to year how much uh, retreat or advance had occurred? Yeah, absolutely. So with these satellites, um, with the earlier ones, the resolution is about 30 meters, so about 90 feet, which is not good enough for some of the smaller glaciers that you might see in like the Cascades in Washington. Um, Some of those, some of the glaciers in the Cascades are too small for that. But for the glaciers that we were looking at in Kenai Fjords, that's plenty big. Um, With some of the more recent satellites, uh, the resolution is actually up to like 15 meters or about 50 feet, um, which is really, really good resolution, really sharp. Yeah, yeah, that, that's interesting. And um, along with um, looking at these satellite images, did, did you um, also pull the weather data to, to monitor temperatures over the, the 38 years? No, so we did not look at weather information for these glaciers. We were focused on just characterizing how much the glaciers have advanced or retreated over this time period. But the data that we collected uh, can be a really useful baseline for future researchers who might want to go into more detail on you know, how different climate factors like temperature and precipitation were specifically affecting these glaciers. Yeah, and I'm wondering, um, one of the glaciers um, that you studied, the Holgate Glacier, one might expect that under the warming conditions um, driven by climate change that that all the glaciers in, in Alaska and elsewhere, I guess, would be in retreat, and yet you found that the Holgate Glacier was actually advancing. Yes, so that was an interesting finding. Um, I believe that the folks at the park had actually, until we did the study, the folks at the park had thought that Holgate Glacier was retreating just based on um, some occasional scattered field observations. So what we actually found was that there is a sediment shoal at the front of Holgate Glacier um, that was first visible around 2020, the year that we did this study. And so when people saw that shoal, they thought, oh, the glacier has retreated um, and it's starting to show land beneath it. Um, But it turns out that the glacier was actually building out this shoal in front of it as it advanced. And so it's, it's evidence of advance rather than retreat, which was kind of a surprise. So this is this behavior is something that's actually fairly common with advancing tidewater glaciers. Um, so Holgate is a tidewater glacier. It enters the marine environment. Um, and often when these glaciers are advancing, it can be due to a combination of factors. It's usually something to do with the shape of the fjord that it's sitting in. Um, and this can happen out of sync with uh, the climate changes that are happening in the area. So you might have most of the glaciers in this area retreating, but a couple uh, could be advancing just due to other factors aside from climate. And often as these glaciers are advancing, they build out the sediment shoal in front of them that can help protect them from the influence of marine waters that might cause them to otherwise retreat. So there are a few glaciers in Alaska um, that are advancing like this, but for the most part, they are retreating. Yeah, yeah. There was another um, glacial story from Alaska. Um, I think it was last year, and, and I forget which park it was specifically, but it said that the the glacier had surged forward, and I guess what what um, was driving that was the meltwater underneath the glacier. Mm-hmm. I think that was, I'm forgetting the name of the glacier, but I think that was at Denali National Park. Um, was it the Mold- that Muldrow sounds, Glacier? That sounds familiar. Yeah, it yeah. might have been that. Um, yeah, that's a slightly different process because that glacier is not um, tidewater. 
Right. Uh, and so it's a surging glacier and surging glaciers are this special kind of subcategory of glaciers. Um, there's a lot of active research that's happening on them to understand what makes them surge um, and, and how that works. Uh, but yeah, some people, uh, a lot of people think that it can be due to um, the meltwater system beneath the glacier that kind of allows the glacier to, uh, for a long time, it's flowing very slowly and then it'll just really quickly speed up and surge forward and then it'll stop again. And that's a little different than what we're seeing at Holgate, where um, it has been advancing pretty steadily for about the last seven years. Um, and it's had a couple of these cycles of advance and retreat over the time period that we looked at. So we started looking in 1984, and I believe that um, shortly after we started uh, measuring the glacier, it advanced maybe like a quarter mile, and then it yeah. retreated about that same distance, and then it stayed steady for a little bit, and then it has started advancing again over the last six or seven years. Wow. Wow. And um, you haven't pinpointed an exact cause that's driving that advance? No. So we didn't look into, um, because we were we were more focused on just characterizing the behavior for a whole bunch of glaciers, we didn't dig into causes of advance or retreat for individual glaciers. It's maybe a little easier to say with Paguna Glacier, which is the other glacier that we looked at that was advancing over this time period. Paguna Glacier is covered in debris um, from a landslide that was caused by the 1964 Alaskan earthquake, um, which was a very large earthquake um, that I think the epicenter was closer to Anchorage. Um, but so it shook these mountains around the glacier and caused this landslide onto the glacier. And that thick cover of rock debris on the glacier actually insulates the glacier surface. Um, so it's thick enough to insulate the glacier and that allows it to advance a little bit because it's not melting as much as it would otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a little easier. Oh, sorry. No, no. You were saying that that was a little easier to. Uh, yeah. So with Paguna Glacier, it's just a little bit easier to identify the cause of why it's advancing because it's this relatively simple mechanism where with Holgate Glacier, Tidewater Glaciers are a little more complicated and there could be a variety of factors that are causing it to advance. Right, right. We're talking today with Taryn Black, a doctoral student in Earth and Space Sciences at the University of Washington, about Kenai Fjords glaciers and, and why they're retreating or why they're advancing. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Petrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with the breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smoky's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. Taryn, I'm wondering, I believe Exit Glacier is another Tidewater Glacier and it's retreating quite a bit, no? Um, Exit Glacier is a land terminating glacier. It's um, kind of at the north end of the park, 
And it's not one of the glaciers that we looked at in our study, actually. So there are several glaciers in Kenai Fjords National Park that we didn't include. Um, we were specifically focused on glaciers on the coastal side of the park and then selected these specific glaciers because they're really large um, or they're really popular uh, tourist destinations or they have important influences on the ecosystems around them, but generally focused on glaciers on the coastal side of the park. Now, were all these glaciers at roughly the same elevation? Um, for the most part. So they they span a range of elevations um, because many of these glaciers are connected to the Harding Ice Field, which sits up at about 4,000 feet. But we were focused on the uh, the terminus of the glacier, which is the, the end or the front of the glacier. And for the most part, those were around sea level, mm-hmm. um, especially for the tidewater glaciers that we looked at. There were a couple of glaciers that were at higher elevations. So um, Haguna Glacier, I think, is a few hundred feet above sea level, and Split Glacier is close to 2,000 feet above sea level. But the other ones that we looked at were pretty much at or close to sea level. So safe to say that there wasn't um, a tremendous difference in elevation that might explain um, some of the behavior you, you witnessed? I think so, yeah. Yeah. Now, we're talking about glaciers. Um I've been in Glacier Bay National Park and, and, and paddled up to like the Marjorie Glacier and you see the, the snout coming out at you, but you never see the tail end of it. Um, w- regarding the Bear and the, the Pedersen Glaciers, how long are they? Um, you know, put another way, um, with the noted three-mile retreat of Bear Glacier, how much is left? So... I did look into these numbers and I have to see if I can remember these numbers off the top of my head. I think when we started looking at Bear Glacier in 1984, um, from the snout of the glacier to uh, the back, quote unquote, of the glacier in the Harding Ice Field, it was about 16 and a half miles long. um, And it's since retreated a few miles. So now it's uh, a little over 13 miles long. Um, So there's still a bit of the glacier left, but it is a question of how quickly will it continue to retreat? How much more ice will we lose? Um, With Pedersen Glacier, when we started looking at the glacier, it was about eight miles long, and now it's about six miles long. Um, So it's lost about a quarter of its length um, in the time frame that we were looking at it. And and have you noticed any um, consistent annual retreat in these glaciers, or does does it vary year by year? With Bear and Pedersen Glacier, they did tend to retreat pretty consistently year to year. Um, Some of the glaciers were quite a bit more variable, um, but those lake terminating glaciers, so Bear, Pedersen, and then Yalit Glacier, which is down at the um, southwestern end of the park, they are lake terminating glaciers. And for whatever reason, all three of those tended to retreat pretty consistently year to year. Yeah, yeah. Now, maybe we should back up a little bit and and take a look at the Harding ice field um, and explain exactly what that is, how big that is, um, its location in the park and, and how it, how many glaciers it feeds. Sure. So the Harding ice field is a large body of ice that sits up in the Kenai mountains. Um, so above and to the west of Seward and it feeds, I actually don't know exactly how many glaciers it feeds. Um, it doesn't feed all of the glaciers that we looked at in our study, um, but it does feed several of them. In addition to the Harding, there's also the Gruink Yalik ice field, um, which is a little bit to the southwest of the Harding, and that feeds a couple of the glaciers that we looked at 
And then a handful of the glaciers that we looked at are formally connected to the ice field, but are now disconnected sometimes since probably since the little ice age. I don't have more stats about the hardening because I'm not, I didn't focus on the, the ice field itself. So I don't know like exactly how big it is, but it, it covers something like half the park. It's, it's pretty big. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty big. And it, it's not going to disappear tomorrow. No, 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 maybe next year, but not tomorrow. <laughs> Um, I'm wondering, can you fine tune how climate change is impacting the glaciers? And maybe we touched on this a little bit, but um, over the course of the 38 years of records you studied, and, and maybe you did answer this, you didn't, you didn't look at high temperatures, high daily temperatures or anything. Right. So we did not look at temperature or precipitation records for our study. Um, we, we pulled a little bit of data just to see what the average winter temperature in Seward was. Um, and that's right around freezing. It was like 32.1 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, and we wanted to know that just to know like, if there is warming in the winter, how would that impact these glaciers? Because if you, um, so we assume that the temperature in Seward is probably comparable to the temperature of a lot of these nearby glaciers. And if the temperature warms above freezing in the winter, um, then you're going to get precipitation as rain rather right. than as snow. Right. Um, and that would be bad for the glaciers um, because these glaciers are sustained by snowfall in the winter. But we did not look at any trends and how that was changing over time or anything like that. We just had a line in our paper where we were curious what the current winter temperature is. Yeah, yeah. And that 32.1, um, was that over the course of the study or was that back at the start of the study? Um, that was for, uh, that was the 30 year average for, I think like 1980 to 2010, it might've been 1990 to 2020. Um, so that was a 30 year average temperature for October through April, which is the accumulation season for these glaciers. No, it certainly it certainly begs um, um, more research, as you say, that um, you know other researchers can can take your findings here and then you know dive down to to see. Particularly in the last ten years, did, did the winter temperatures increase um, significantly, and, and what about precipitation levels? Because as you said, you know if if it gets warm enough that the the snow falls as rain, um, that's not good for glacial. Um, absolutely, formation. absolutely, and yeah, that was something that just wasn't in the scope of the study that we did, but would definitely be really interesting to look at. And we have talked to some other researchers who've expressed interest in using our data for their own studies as well. So I'm excited to see it evolve. Now you mentioned that you, you've done similar um, research in Greenland, mm -hmm. apples and oranges, or did you anything uh, come across similar? Um, I guess similarities are mainly that glaciers are for the most part retreating um, in both Greenland and Alaska and in other parts of the world. There are exceptions. There are some glaciers that are advancing, but uh, glacier retreat is widespread. Differences in this Alaska study, the glaciers tended to be quite a bit smaller um, than the glaciers that I was looking at in Greenland. Uh, and I was just working on kind of a different, a different spatial scale in Greenland. So I was looking at 90 glaciers rather than 19 glaciers spread across a much larger region of Greenland. Um, and with that study, I was again characterizing whether these glaciers had advanced or retreated, but I did pull more climate information into that. Um, so we were trying to understand, yes, these glaciers are retreating. And in fact, we found that there was a really sharp acceleration in the retreat rate of these Greenland glaciers in the 1990s. 
And so we were looking at climate factors to try to understand what caused that acceleration in the retreat rate. And our results were kind of inconclusive. Um, we found that it could be a few different things um, and we didn't have sufficient data. Um, there, there just isn't sufficient data out there to really nail it down further. But generally related to um, uh, how much the surface of the ice is melting, but also um, how water temperatures are changing at the front of these glaciers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, glacial history is is really kind of amazing. I mean, when you talk recent history and, and human history, you know, John Muir went up to a, um, Alaska to Glacier Bay, I think, in the either the late 1800s or the early 1900s. And, you know, a lot of the glaciers were, you know, they almost filled all of Glacier Bay. Um, and you look at it today, it's 65 miles up to the um, the Grand Pacific Glacier, I think it's called. And you look at the pictures over time, and um, it really, it, it strikes you, at least it, it struck me as, you know, a drastic change in nature, and you you have you have to, I guess, be in awe of nature of of what it can do both in building these these rivers of ice as well as melting them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think people often think of glaciers as something that change very slowly. I mean, we have the term a glacial pace that means something that's changing incredibly slowly, but glaciers are actually incredibly dynamic um, and there can be really rapid changes, um, especially especially with these tidewater glaciers, like the ones at Glacier Bay National Park or these glaciers that I look at in Greenland, some of the glaciers at Kenai Fjords. Um, like I mentioned earlier, there's climate is an important factor in how these glaciers are changing, but there's additional factors that come into play with these tidewater glaciers, like the shape of the fjord that they're sitting in and things like that, that can really accentuate how dynamic they are and how quickly they change. How so? I'm, I'm curious. I mean, the, the fjord's the shape of the fjord. Um, yeah. Um, so one factor that I think about um, more often uh, is the depth of the fjord and how that changes along the length of the glacier. So if a glacier is sitting on a relatively high point in a fjord, that is a stable configuration um, for dynamical reasons that have to do with uh, how much how much ice can cap off of that glacier. If for some reason the glacier gets knocked off of that high point, maybe because of a climate change and it retreats a little bit, if there's a really large over-deepening behind the glacier, so the, the bathymetry or the water depth the depth of the fjord beneath the glacier gets much deeper. That is an unstable configuration. Um, it allows the glacier to uh, export a lot more ice. So the glacier can retreat really rapidly through that overdeepening, and it will just keep retreating until it reaches a new, maybe another high point or a narrowing in the fjord or something that allows it to restabilize. Um, this is something that's been pretty commonly observed, definitely in Greenland, I think in parts of Alaska as well. Um, this kind of bathymetry and fjord width factor um, that affects tidewater glaciers. Yeah, yeah. So are, are glaciers your forte? Is it um, the, the prime point of your research? Yeah, I would describe myself as a glaciologist, and I use satellite images to study glaciers. Based on the study, I mean, can, can you make any predictions about when some of these glaciers might completely melt out? I mean, you, you looked at the, um, the Bear and I think the Pedersen Glacier, you said were basically consistently retreating on an annual basis. Can you project out when they might vanish or is that 
too hard? We did not do any projections with our work. And I don't think that you could necessarily say Bear Glacier has been retreating at this consistent rate. So it will continue to retreat at that same consistent rate because of like this factor that I just mentioned with the, um, the depth of the water or the depth of the fjord that the glacier is sitting in. There's been a little bit of radar work done on Bear Glacier that shows that there is a big over deepening um, a little bit upstream of where the front of the glacier is right now. And without doing a lot of um, like glacier flow modeling work, we can't really predict how that would affect uh, how the glacier will retreat in the future. We don't know, maybe, maybe it's gonna reach a stable point soon and it'll sit there for a while. We don't have that information. So we did not, we did not do any kind of projections with our work. Yeah. What, what is over deepening? An over deepening is a, so if you picture, if you picture a fjord, you might picture it just having like a completely flat um, bottom to it. Um, but in reality, uh, it's, it's very uneven. There can be highs and lows and an over deepening is just a really deep spot in the fjord that's been generally has been carved out by a glacier. So I generally picture it, this might not be entirely accurate, but I generally picture it being uh, a high point and then a big carved out basin and then another high point. So you could go from a, a thickness and just throwing out approximations, you could go from a, a thickness of a, a hundred feet or so to, to two or 300 feet. Sure. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. And so when it gets back to that thicker part, the advance might slow or stop, as you said. Yeah. We're talking today with Taryn Black, a researcher at the University of Washington who's been studying glaciers at uh, Kenai Fjords National Park. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That is why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people, inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. So Taryn, I'm wondering, um, the, the retreat of glaciers, and uh, some years ago I did a fellowship at, at Stanford University looking into how climate change was affecting um, the national park system. And one of the researchers there was telling me that he had he had taken his son to, to Glacier National Park because he was concerned that in the future there would be no glaciers to see at Glacier National Park. He, he wanted his son to see those. And then he he wondered that the impacts of losing those glaciers because, you know, they, they provide spring runoff and summer runoff and they feed streams and they, they nourish vegetation and they nourish wildlife. 
I would have to assume that the retreat of these glaciers in Kenai Fjords are, are probably having some of the similar effects or, or there's concern for similar effects? Absolutely. So uh, my collaborator, Deb, would be a better person to speak about this than me because she has a background in ecology, but I can take a stab at it because I've learned things from her. Um, so yeah, as these glaciers are for the most part retreating, um, there is land cover change associated with that. So where you once had ice, the glacier retreats and now you have a larger fjord or a larger lake, or if this is a land terminating glacier, then as the glacier retreats, you have new land. Um, and that land is then vegetated in some succession of plants. You know, one species of plants starts to grow on the freshly exposed land and then new plants will start to come in and, and colonize that land. And this uh, does have implications for the ecosystems that are associated with these glaciers. So just some examples, with the water terminating glaciers, so tidewater and lake terminating glaciers, uh, they affect the temperature of the water that's adjacent to them. Um, and that matters for fish and other critters that live in that water. Glaciers that have streams coming off of them um, also affect the temperature of those streams. That's something, so I live in Washington and that's something that I think about with the glaciers down here is that these glaciers melt in the summer and that melt helps cool down the streams and rivers that are flowing off of these glaciers and helps um, keep the temperatures more habitable for salmon down here. They're also, again, down in Washington, um, a lot of the runoff for these glaciers keeps our hydropower running in the summer. Some of this water is used for agriculture, things like that. So yeah, there's, there's a whole bunch of different reasons that these glaciers are really important for ecosystems and for people, um, as well as just purely thinking about like glacier retreat and why that matters. Yeah. Yeah. So you can see a, a complete makeover of a landscape. Of course, we're talking glacial, glacial time, not human, human time, I would imagine. Um, well, but um, you can see some of these changes happening over human time scales too, right? Because if, you know, some of these glaciers retreat a couple hundred feet in a decade or something like that, that doesn't sound like that much, but that's a couple hundred feet more land um, that can then be vegetated and then that's a little bit more habitat for bears or other animals like that and thinking back to the the glaciers that end in water um retreat of these glaciers can affect like the nutrients that flow into the water and sure. again the temperature of the water and things like that so this can absolutely happen on human time scales is your study applicable to other national parks in alaska the methods that we used could be applied to other national parks in Alaska, but I would hesitate to say like some percent of our glaciers retreated. And so that percent of glaciers must be retreating in other national parks. I don't think we could do something like that. But as you went through this study and you looked at those Landsat images, did you want to say, huh, I think I'm going to take a few hours and, and look at uh, Denali's glaciers and or, or Glacier Bay's glaciers to oh, see, sure. yeah. see how they're... Um, responding um, yeah absolutely because it really is um, um, amazing on one end and, and really concerning on, a, on another when you you look at the pictures from the early 1900s the late 1800s and you see what's transformed today and then you think about the um, the ecosystem impacts that the loss of these glaciers is going to create it's a tough one tough one to get your arms around so where do you go from here? Is this study complete and uh, time to move on to another project? Yeah, so I actually just graduated 
um, and I am figuring out what my next steps are. Uh, still looking for work. So for this study, uh, yeah, we have wrapped it up, and I think absolutely there is more work that could be done. Um, and like I said before, we've talked to some people who are really interested in using some of our data for their own research. I would love to see that happen. I am not sure that much as I would like to, I'm not sure that this is something that I will continue working on just because of the vagaries of trying to find a job and what will that job be? <laughs> sure, sure. But but maybe the Park Service in Alaska has a job. I know uh, there's a lot of concern over the, the science and the research and what's going on and the um, the calls for you know 30 by 30 and, and taking a look at um, lands that not only could be better protected, but lands that are undergoing change right now and, and how that's impacting the ecosystem and the, the flora and the fauna. It's got to be great, great, uh, great research projects out there. I'm sure. Yeah. I, I'll look for those jobs. <laughs> <laughs> well, Taryn, thanks so much for your time today. It's really interesting research that you've been involved with and uh, look forward to you um, delving deeper into um, glaciology across uh, the world, I guess. Um, the parks are just one small aspect of that. Thanks, Kurt. that's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Among the pieces we're working on for the coming weeks is one on Fat Bear Week 2022 at Katmai National Park and Reserve in Alaska, and a look over the past 25 years of the Grand Teton National Park Foundation. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Rabincheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit nationalparkstraveler.org.